Welcome to the latest edition of Cantillon Effects, entitled Free Lunch Finance. The poster girl of the voguish crankdom that is modern monetary theory, or MMT, Stephanie Kelton, has been out and about pimping her new book, The Deficit Myth, with a great deal of help from the unofficial PR department, which she seems to have nestled within the house organ of DeVos, the execrable FT itself. Here, Professor Kelton, for all the puffery about how fearless and radical is her approach, is clearly pushing at an open door, a gaping aperture in the last bastion of economic rationality that is being held open by no less a personage than Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, a man who recently went on record to boast, we will never run out of money. We shall return to Chairman Powell later, but for now, let's take a brief look at Madame MMT's magnum opus in order to get a sense of her penetrating wisdom and intellectual profundity. Loosely condensed, her genius idea starts with the truism that for every borrower, there must be a lender. Move over Polonius. From that trite, if uncontroversial, launch ramp, she then proceeds to jump a veritable canyon of non-sequiturs to argue that this removes all constraints on state spending. To paraphrase our economic evil Knievel, that means that the government's minus $10 is always matched by plus $10 in some other part of the economy. Balance sheets must balance, after all. The government's deficit is always mirrored by an equivalent surplus in another part of the economy. And this is about the sum of what here passes for wisdom. Now, anyone who tries to argue about how a complex dynamic system works by taking intermittent snapshots, i.e. by compiling periodic tautological accounting balances and stopping there, is a simpleton or a charlatan or both. That's a process akin to flash-freezing a living cell and arguing that a simple chemical analysis of its constituents will tell you all you need to know about the subtleties inherent to its metabolism, not to say its future evolution. While one may entertain genuine doubts about which of these two categories, fool or faker, Madame MMT falls into, there seem to be no others into which she and her crew can rightly be put. We have expanded at length upon the second-hand idiocies of MMT in the past, so here we'll limit ourselves to the one principal objection that we must make to her logical chicanery. We could call this money for nothing equals nothing for money. Now suppose that the state issues a T-bill to a bank, which accordingly credits its account with $100. This sum is then made over to some designated recipient, whether someone enjoying the overt welfare afforded to the hard-up or needy, or the hidden welfare of being counted on the public payroll. That recipient now comes to me, clutching his checkbook, and asks to buy something I happen to have up for sale. Not knowing how he, or the state before him, came by his money, I naturally agree to give him the relevant quantum of my scarce real goods in exchange for it, and for the present, think a little more about it. Now yes, if we press the pause button right there, I am shown to have a $100 claim on the bank, while it still has the original T-bill as its corresponding asset, leaving only the state with an unmatched obligation to meet, so cancelling out the bank's offsetting positions, government debt minus equals my asset plus QED MMT rules. Aye, but here's the rub. Once those real goods formerly in my possession are consumed, unless they have been put to some productive, in fact reproductive use, 
My $100 claim is an empty one. There's nothing now, either currently in existence or in realistic prospect, which I, or any other poor unfortunate in turn whose goods I have subsequently managed to exchange for that money, can hope to buy to replace them. Instead, we've been gulled into playing past the empty parcel, or as Kelton's beloved Keynes once snidely remarked, into passing the bad or depreciating half-crown to the other fellow. As transparent as it is, Miss Kelton's entire book-length presumption is that we can all be persuaded that it is somehow possible to build an earthly paradise on the basis of that one cheap trick. We could next expatiate on the perils of putting so much power over resources into the hands of the agency least likely to use them fairly profitably and responsibly, namely the state. And we could also point out that Mrs. Kelton was preceded in her imaginings by one Beardsley Rummel, then New York Fed chairman, as far back as 1945. But for now, let us leave you with a brief summation of her doctrine as follows. MMT is nothing more than a dangerous piece of sophistry which tells the most profligate group of spenders of other people's money that not only is there no practical limit to their incontinence, but that they should consider their every indulgence in it to be of the highest possible service to the public good. Now adding to that temptation, a different but highly complementary canard currently doing the rounds takes the rough form of the contention that while yields are low, the public debt's no burden. And if yields were not going to remain low, the burden would be too much to bear. Therefore, yields will be low. This is to elevate the mantra of Doc Dickens' Mr. Micawber to the level of policy prescription. Annual income £20, annual expenditure £19.19 19 and six months result happiness, he used to say. Annual income £20, annual expenditure £20, autumn 6, result misery. Therefore, our modern gurus would add, annual expenditure will be fixed at £19, 19 shillings and sixpence forever. Clearly, no one espousing this view understands the difference between real resource costs and virtual financial ones. So let's step back a pace or two to see why this superficially reassuring argument is both misplaced and mischievous. It can hardly be contested that the state's mishandling of the coronavirus crisis has destroyed or impaired tremendous amounts of productive capital, a loss which it is imperative neither to understate nor to camouflage. With this in mind, the regrettable fact that the gazillion new IOUs which it has issued as a partial and presumably temporary recompense for this loss will come with artificially low interest rates is absolutely no cause for cheer, in fact quite the converse. The continual attempts to hide, smear out and insidiously reallocate the bad consequences of past economic and political follies are what keep adding to the increasing magnification of the shocks which are felt every time we hit a speed bump. Since the present degree of such studied obfuscation seems set to dwarf all previous ones, it is hard to resist the inference but it also risks setting in train all manner of repercussions on an equally extended scale of severity. Such misplaced efforts at hiding and redistributing the pain of loss are not only counterproductive in a narrow economic sense, but they rank highly among the very things which increase perceptions of a growing inequality of treatment as well as of outcome, and so corrode the body politic. 
Ah, populism, cries the now threatened elite, which is responsible for this generation, but seemingly either unaware of or indifferent to the fact that its policies are widely seen to be spreading the reach of the inherently corrupt corporatist state, while also enriching leveraged financial speculators at the expense of the forgotten men and women who are contrastingly both prudent and hard-working. Do not let yourself be fooled, therefore. We will not escape paying for our leaders' sins, no matter how low the level at which bond yields are nailed by them in the meanwhile. And one of the most vocal advocates of cultivating rather than extirpating this knotweed of monetary confusion is a certain Professor Kenneth Rogoff, a bright star in a firmament studded with countless examples of experts, all happy to radiate any kind of Swiftian lunacy conceivable at us. Friend Rogoff's distinction from his fellow inhabitants of Laputa is that he thinks we can best try to reflect the economy by driving recalcitrant savers and importune creditors to the wall in place of the long bull market's dense detritus of deadbeat debtors. He wants to do this, of course, by slashing central bank-imposed interest rates far below zero and abolishing cash as a medium of exchange to prevent us from avoiding the costs of his ruse. Under his panacea of super-NERP, we'd be paying people and paying them handsomely to boot, to borrow. Hmm. I wonder how much debt that might encourage people to take on as a cure for their disease of overborrowing. The good professor, however, sees no such problems with his scheme, as he explains. For starters, just like cuts in the good old days of positive interest rates, negative interest rates would lift many firms, states and cities from defaults. If done correctly, his word not ours and recent empirical evidence increasingly supports this really where exactly negative rates would operate similarly to normal monetary policy boosting aggregate demand and raising employment so before carrying out debt restructuring surgery on everything wouldn't it be better to try a dose of normal monetary stimulus normal monetary stimulus for those of you who don't understand the sheer madness of this proposal, imagine that you're shipwrecked on an island and your only source of provision is to be found in the few boxes of canned goods you've managed to salvage. Rogoff thinks your chances of survival will be enhanced if you pierce all the containers now and then try to guzzle the contents of as many as you can before they all go off. On this reasoning, Tom Hanks' character in Castaway should clearly have thrown all those FedEx packages straight back into the surf which first washed them up. It had been quite a short movie. Rather than have one bad firm fail, or force one worker, not having his labour used productively as it stands, to seek other, more profitable employment, these fools would force those who do thrive, and the savers who enable that success, to subsidise economic losers or else be forced to burn their seed corn. This monetary scorched earth policy is the economic equivalent of our coronavirus lockdown. We're told we should ruin the well-being of the healthy and vigorous mass to spare ourselves, temporarily in most cases, the demise of the unfortunate, susceptible few. To finish up, let's turn to the agency which is at the forefront of making a de facto reality of Miss Kelton's febrile imaginings, and one which is being urged to compound that crime by implementing Rogoff's even more perverse proposals. Step forward the Federal Reserve. 
Having endured months of opprobrium for daring to trim his institution's corrosive overreach last year, during the brief interlude wrongly described as quantitative tightening, Chairman Powell has now dropped his former reticence with alacrity, donned his firefighter's clothing, dropped down the sliding pole and rushed with sirens blaring to douse the flames of recession. Alas, it may soon be revealed that he's connected the hose to a fuel pipe rather than a water main, having given rise to the creation of a $2.5 trillion increment of money and its nearest substitutes in a bare 10-week burst of scattergun inflationism, a sum equal to the one which it took all the previous 43 months of expansion last to be called into being. Clearly, Mr Powell, there is nothing, as you say, to suggest that you will run out of money any time soon. What you may, however, run out of is our willingness to accept that money in exchange for our goods and services. To see why that might be, we suggest you refer to the arguments advanced above against Stephanie Kelton's free lunch tooth fairy economics. And all we can say to you is, enough of this madness, please. Thank you.